It's Monday, June the 7th, 2021, and a new milestone's been crossed. More than 2 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist science correspondent. And I'm Slavaya Chankova, the healthcare correspondent, filling in for Natasha Lauder. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We are following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we're talking about travel. How can countries safely reopen to foreign visitors? And how safe are you from COVID sitting on a plane? Hi, Slavia. Nice to have you with us this week. How are you? Hi, Alok. Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you. I've been following the story about rich countries starting to donate some of their vaccines to countries that have shortages. They're donating, so this is actually happening now. Yes, finally. And it's quite important because there is a global shortage. I've also heard a rumour, Slavia, that you actually had some time off this week. Is that true? I can't believe that can be true. <laughs> I did manage to take a couple of days off. It was unusually sunny in London, so uh, hard to miss. It was unusually sunny in London, that's right. Uh, joining us as well this week is Ed Carr, The Economist Deputy Editor. Ed, welcome back. Hi, Alok. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you, Ed. Um, I've got a big question for you. Do you think you're going to manage to get away this year on holiday, or are you preparing for a UK staycation? I am desperate to go away. Every year, pretty much for the past 30 years, I've gone to the most beautiful place in the world, Kerry, in the Republic of Ireland. A wonderful place. But I think I'm one of the lucky ones, even to be thinking about going away. Most people don't go on holiday. And most people are still unvaccinated in countries where this disease is rampant and devastating. I guess, though, for those of us fortunate enough to be in countries which have been vaccinated, holidays are on our mind. Well, hopefully we'll have some answers for you by the end of this episode. We're going to be hearing next from someone who's very keen to get the travel sector going again, Willie Walsh, who leads the airline industry's main trade group. The buzz of airports and the hum on board planes might seem like memories from a bygone era. 2020 has been described as the worst year in history for aviation. International passenger demand fell 75% below 2019 levels. But as the vaccine rollout continues to gather pace in rich countries, plans are in motion to restart international travel. We believe that with the rollout of the vaccine, which has gained significant momentum, there's good reason for governments to start re-evaluating the risk associated with international travel. Willie Walsh is the Director General of the International Air Transport Association, or IATA. We have a lot of people now who are fully vaccinated. Uh, We believe that in line with actually decisions taken by many governments, that those people should be allowed to travel without restriction. Uh, So they should not be required to undertake testing and they should not be required to undertake any form of quarantine. And for people who have not yet been vaccinated, that they should be allowed to travel with a sensible testing regime in place. And when I mean sensible... There's great evidence to support the view that rapid antigen testing is as effective 
from a risk management point of view as PCR, and clearly uh, the rapid antigen is more convenient, significantly cheaper, and could be more easily availed of by people around the world. From your point of view, how risk averse do you think governments have been in regards to international travel versus in many places like the UK or in America, reopening restaurants and bars has happened now and people are encouraged to, they can mix indoors safely. Whereas international travel is still quite restricted. I think they've been extremely risk averse. And what we're dealing with now, in my opinion, is political risk rather than health risk. As I said, the risk framework we're operating against today is very different to that that existed you know, 12, 15 months ago. If you remember back then, the primary concern was that health systems would be overrun by people requiring um, treatment in hospital. Those concerns have largely been addressed in most countries, not all countries, but, but in most countries. Do you think that the airline industry has become a bit of a soft target to show that Governments are doing something in terms of trying to keep the spread of the virus down. Well, you know, banning international travel, I don't believe, is doing anything to uh, keep the spread of the virus down. We've put hard data available from the UK, where since um, the requirement for people flying into the UK to undertake testing has been introduced back in February of this year, over 365,000 people arriving in the UK have uh, tested on or before day two and on day eight. And of the 365,000 people, uh, 8,000 people subsequently tested positive for coronavirus, so 2.2%. So 98, almost 98, 97.8% of people flying into the UK were either required to go into mandatory hotel or uh, self-isolate at home when there was nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with them. So airlines have been a soft target. The industry has been brutally impacted uh, by the measures introduced by governments, and it is time to reassess those measures. Now, um, people who are concerned about travel and spread of the disease and everything would would say that, you know, as the head of IATA, you would say that. So how, how would you go about reassuring those people that the industry is being responsible in taking the steps necessary to get everything towards normality again? Well, I've been in this industry for over 40 years, and we manage risk all the time. And we base our decisions on evidence, on data. I think everybody would accept that uh, the vaccine rollout has been very effective. I think everybody would accept that we were promised that we would get our freedom back when vaccines were produced. And, and when you think about it, you know, we have had, certainly from an EU point of view, and I, I am a an Irish citizen and a citizen of the EU, it's a fundamental principle of the EU, freedom of movement. That freedom was removed. And things like that should only happen in extreme circumstances. And while people would naturally support restrictions being introduced during the initial phase of the pandemic, I think people must look at the facts and the data that exist today and recognize that things have changed and that we can start returning our lives to a more normal way than we've had to live for the past 12 months. Slavea, can you take us through how countries are starting to lift quarantine and testing requirements for people who've been fully vaccinated? 
We are starting to see that happening within the European Union. The vaccination passports, or rather the digital green certificate, as it's called, was piloted in seven countries in the EU, including some popular holiday destinations like Croatia and Greece. And it will go into force in all 27 member states on July 1st, just on time for holiday season. And the way it works is if someone is fully vaccinated, recovered from the virus, so they have record of having been infected or tested negative within the last 72 hours, that person would get a QR code that they can show and and that green pass will let them travel to any other European Union country without having to quarantine or test. So that's a step that we may start seeing in more countries. Of course, countries have to accept the record issued by another country, which perhaps is a bit easier within the EU because systems are synchronized and so on. Ed, as more and more people get vaccinated, are we moving to a world where we're going to have some sort of certificate like this to be able to travel without the cumbersome nature of quarantines and tests and so on? Completely, completely. And, and actually, the, the economics requires that. I mean, you go away on holiday, and if you're lucky, you stay in a really nice hotel. Then you get on the plane to come home, and you're quarantined in another hotel for, what, 10 days or whatever it is, at enormous expense. In fact, even the cost of the expensive tests is enough to put people off travelling. So I think it, certainly in their sense of there being a, any large-scale return to travel, passports are going to have to be the way to do it. Indeed, tests are very expensive, aren't they? I I know somebody who wanted to just travel to the EU very briefly from Britain, and the five tests that you need to on the way out and on the way back are about £1,000 in total. One needs to remember that tourism is quite an important industry, and there will be countries who make a lot of money from tourism, and you see it in Europe. um, It's been driven by Greece and Spain and Portugal. They need tourists, and they'll really push this process forward. I'm interested in some of the other countries like, let's say, the United States that are less dependent on tourism. What will be the process there? I I suspect this will be driven by the countries that have a big tourism industry. They'll set the standards, they'll get it going, and the kind of proof of concept will gradually mean it spreads. Now, obviously, it's not just air travel that's suffered during the pandemic. Um, Our sister show, Money Talks, recently spoke to Arnold Donald. He's the CEO of Carnival Corporation, the world's biggest cruise company. Mr. Donald explained how his industry was preparing to get going again after almost a year of being stuck. Um, But Ed, Willie Walsh said in his interview that the airline industry has been a bit of a soft target for governments, a political target in some respects throughout the pandemic in terms of not allowing them to get back to normal in the same way that other industries have perhaps been allowed to do so. Why do you think that would be the case? Well, I think he's got half a point here. I mean, if if I think of the environments in which we know this virus spreads, it's where people are in a crowded space shouting and talking for a long time. Well, that to me, that's a pub or a nightclub. It's not an aeroplane. I also think that in pandemics, there's just the history of pandemics. It's all about nasty things coming from abroad. And so there's a sort of political, you know, you're you're kind of going with the political grain when you do this. However, I think there's one point that he glossed over, which is time and again, we've seen new variants come in that are, are more infectious than the ones that are at home. And if you think about the number of people who are going to end up filling hospital wards, transmissibility is a really, really important variable. 
And we've seen what happens in countries like India when you get a rapid transmission of it, you get overwhelmed health systems. So the one bit I think he missed out was that you don't want to import very infectious new variants. So you do want to have controls there. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story that I found interesting recently was the newest economic outlooks from the OECD. Now, we know that economies are going to diverge as they emerge from COVID-19. America and China are set to do very well. Many poor countries, unfortunately, are not going to do well. But the pandemic's also struck different industries in different ways. The OECD report outlines how tech and pharmaceutical companies have prospered, while, as you might expect, transport and energy firms are going to suffer the most. To read that, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. On the 1st of March 2020, a 27-year-old Vietnamese businesswoman boarded flight VN54 from London to Hanoi. She had a sore throat and a cough, and days later would test positive for COVID-19. At the time, the use of face masks wasn't mandatory on planes. It's thought she infected 15 others on the flight, including more than half the passengers sitting with her in business class. The story might not surprise you. At first glance, the closed, cramped environment of an aircraft cabin could seem like a virus's dream. But to understand the real risks of boarding a flight and how to mitigate them, you need to know how the coronavirus is transmitted through the air. I'm Lydia Moravska, professor at the Queensland University of Technology. I'm physicist working in a broad field of air pollution and its impact on people and the environment. Over the past year, Lydia has led an appeal for public health agencies to recognise that the coronavirus can spread through the air. We all generate particles when we breathe, when we speak, when we cough. And if we are infected, uh, these particles uh, from these respiratory activities contain viruses. And once they are in the air, they will travel in the air with any air flows which are present in that environment. Unless they are very big, then they would fall down to the ground quickly. But the majority of the particles are very small and they can hang in the air for quite a long time. And these particles can hang in the air for a long time and maybe move several metres away from the infected person and potentially infect other people for many hours after they're emitted. Well, they can travel a few metres. They can travel tens of metres. It depends which way airflow is taken and where that airflow will take these particles. Now, whether would they infect other person, it depends also what would happen to the virus in this period of time. So if they are freshly emitted, the virus will still be active. If, let's say, they are emitted an hour ago or two hours ago, it will depend on the environment. This sounds like a particular problem indoors where, as you say, the particles might linger for some time. Um, So are measures like hand washing, social distancing, these things that we've been doing for the past year, are they enough to prevent airborne transmission? Well, all these measures are important, uh, starting with social distancing. The further away we are from a source, the lower the concentration of what's emitted. 
But just by the fact that you are further away doesn't mean that you won't be infected because those small particles will linger in the air if the environment provides the right conditions for this. So social distancing is not definitely not enough. Well, hand washing is always important, but there's been little evidence that this virus transmits by what's left on the hands. In a room, let's say um, inside your house or in an enclosed space, what, what is the way to reduce the risk of airborne transmission? There are two important aspects to lower the risk, and they all uh, relate to ventilation. And we are talking about sufficient and effective ventilation. Sufficient means enough of fresh air delivered to the room to remove the virus which was emitted there. Uh, And effective means everywhere within that room, which means not leaving dead corners where there is no air movement, and ensuring that air is not flowing from one person to another because sitting downwind from an infected person for a prolonged period of time may result with infection. So these are the most important measures relating to ventilation. Now, we're talking about travel in this episode. We often hear that air travel is relatively safe because the air within the cabin of an aircraft is changed very often and there are in-flight filtration systems. What do you make of that? This is correct. That's what normally is the case, that ventilation is very good, very efficient. But if you are sitting to your co-passenger with a distance of 30, 40 centimetres, no matter how good ventilation it is, there is potentially you may be uh, infected. So there's some argument to say that perhaps on a plane, as well as having the good ventilation and filtration, there might need to be some social distancing if uh, to reduce further the risk of spread. Well, this has been postulated that that's what should be the case. However, this is not economic from the point of view of the operators, because uh, running planes which are half full or so, it's not economic. But then the solution is wearing masks, and that's what I would strongly recommend. Given everything you've said, how do you feel about travel? Well, again, this is a package of interventions. So we are talking about ventilation, we are talking about masks, but another part of this equation is vaccination. So I personally will be vaccinated. No vaccine is 100% effective, but it's effective. So if you add this as a part of this equation, then the probability of infection is going to be very low. Therefore, I personally wouldn't hesitate from traveling. Slavia, what do we know about instances of coronavirus spreading on airplanes? There were several documented examples, but uh, those were mostly from early in the pandemic, before masks were required on airplanes or were worn frequently. So I haven't really seen any more recent studies of cases in countries where lots of people are vaccinated, people wearing masks of actually how how high the risk may be. But I agree with Lydia that it's probably quite low when you add up all these kind of protective measures. Do you think there's enough public awareness about airborne transmission of the coronavirus? I mean, lots of people seem very concerned about washing hands, and that's been a very successful public health campaign. Um, Even my children wash their hands repeatedly now. Um, Do you think that public health campaigns should maybe try and focus on airborne transmission a bit more, Slavia? I think so. There is definitely better awareness of that now. But I do think that better information campaigns are in order. So governments were telling people to wash hands, wear a mask, keep at a distance from each other. I think now they should really stress the importance of ventilation. 
because people are vaccinated, they're starting to go out to restaurants where that is allowed. And I think just adding that extra layer of protection by ventilating spaces as best as we can will certainly help. And allow people to understand their risks a bit more and have a bit more control of the situation that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. Because nothing is risk-free, but you just have to judge the situation of how risky it may be. Do you have, you know, two people for dinner or do you have 15? Uh, Slavia, I don't even know 15 people who can I can invite for dinner, never mind having that option. <laughs> Ed. Yeah, I, I know the bunch that they turn up. Um, I completely agree. I mean, this what we're saying now about travel has got to be true for the future of the pandemic in general, is that we're going from a, a situation in countries fortunate enough to have been vaccinated, where the risk is going to go from something dictated by governments who say this behaviour is allowed, that isn't allowed, to individual calculations about what risk they want to be exposed to. And that process is underway already, I, I think, in some countries which have high rates of vaccination and it's going to spread. And travel is just a specific case of that. You know, is it worth traveling? How much do you gain? How important is it to you? How vulnerable are you? Are you traveling with people who are vulnerable? Are you go to see someone who's vulnerable. All of those things will start to become part of the kind of calculation we make when we travel. I'm going to spare listeners a full technical description of how important ventilation is. And if you want that, you can go to Babbage, which is our sister podcast on science and technology. In the most recent episode, we went into quite technical detail about how the SARS-CoV-2 virus is airborne and how ventilation can stop it spreading around. So do have a listen to that. Um, Slavea, Lydia said that ventilation on planes tends to be good. But what about airports? Do you worry that the extra COVID measures needed, you know, longer queues and all of that in buildings that are not necessarily so well ventilated, does that concern you in terms of infection spread? Personally, that's the part of a trip that would worry me the most because it's really hard to plan airport foot traffic. You know, planes get delayed for all sorts of reasons. So people can pile up in corridors and passport queues and so on. And that, in fact, happened to me last summer when I went to Sweden on a reporting trip. I was really nervous when, you know, our flight was late and we just were cramped in this little corridor with lots of other passengers from all over the world. And of course, another worry I have is that some people will travel even if they have symptoms. Unfortunately, I saw a survey from earlier this year, which was done in Wales, and they found that, you know, about 20% of people they surveyed, it was a small one, but still, would get on a plane home even if they have a cough, fever, or other typical COVID symptoms. Uh, and 27% said they did not know, which is probably they'd consider it. Ed, does this concern you too? Well, there's an example, isn't there? In Singapore, Changi Airport, you know, it's a big place where lots of people come from all over the world. And um, people from high risk countries with high levels of infections were infecting airport workers who then went to eat in the kind of restaurants in the rest of the building and infected everyone there. And that's how Singapore got this most recent wave. So they've now redesigned the airport to have passengers from high-risk countries isolated from everybody else. And I guess one can sort of make airports safer like that. But it's really interesting. You know, it didn't happen on the plane. It happened at the airport. Just to wind up in this section, um, 
there's no one solution to stopping the spread of this thing. And I think it's it's worth being intelligent about it, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And if you talk to infection prevention specialists, they always bring up the Swiss cheese model. If you have slices of Swiss cheese, they all have holes in them. But then when you stack them together, the likelihood that something gets through all the holes from one end to the other of the stack is very low. So that's basically how it is with infection prevention measures. Not all of them are perfect. Nothing is probably 100% preventive. But if you have several of them, if you have high rate of vaccination and masks and you know ventilation and so on, then the likelihood that an outbreak will occur becomes very, very small. While some governments remain hesitant to admit visitors from abroad, Japan will soon have to open its gates. On July the 23rd, the Tokyo Olympics will kick off. That means 15,000 athletes and perhaps as many as 90,000 hangers-on are set to descend upon Japan from some 200 countries. So far, Japan has avoided the large-scale outbreaks of the coronavirus suffered by many other countries. It has registered just over 13,000 COVID-19 deaths. But the country is now battling a fourth wave. Major cities have been in a state of emergency since April. And polls show that more than 60% of the Japanese population doesn't want the Games to go ahead. In Japan, opposition to the Olympics has been growing louder as July approaches. Miki Kobayashi writes for The Economist from our Tokyo bureau. For a little while now, people have been protesting against the Olympic Games, marching through the streets of Tokyo, chanting slogans like, we will not accept the Games, and life is more important than the Olympics. It's totally understandable that people would be worried uh, about the arrival of so many people, tens of thousands of foreign visitors in the middle of a pandemic. When you speak to people, what do they say to you? So I've spoken with a few people in Tokyo about how they feel about the Olympic Games. And one woman named Haruka, she told me something that is commonly expressed in Japan. She questions holding the Olympics at this particular time. And she also argued that there are other things that should be prioritized. She believes that the Japanese government has also been pressured into going ahead with the Games by the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC. And, you know, I think it is a fair point. The contract signed between the IOC and the Japanese government, for example, it states that the Olympic Committee can only call it quits. So this means that if Japan were to cancel unilaterally, the IOC would have the right to seek damages in court. But not everyone is against the Olympics being held. So, for example, Nanami, a young woman that I met, she told me that she supports holding the Olympics because athletes have trained really hard over the years. She acknowledges that there are risks, but that if they are properly managed, the Games can go ahead. You can understand that part of the argument. What, what plans are in place to try and manage some of the risks? Firstly, the organizers are aiming to create bubbles around the Olympic Village and competition sites to isolate participants from locals. And there are also these so-called playbooks, or what we call COVID guidelines. These playbooks have also been published. 
And these rules include requiring all visitors to submit super detailed activity plans and banning visitors from using any form of public transport in the country. And although vaccination will not be mandatory for athletes, the head of the IOC claims that 80% of those in the Olympic Village will be vaccinated by the start of the Games. In terms of spectators, foreign spectators will not be allowed to attend the event in person, but the decision on whether local domestic spectators will be allowed to watch will be made hopefully by the end of this month in June. And there have been some suggestions that they might be able to attend if they have proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. What's the widest story of the pandemic in Japan at the moment? Has Japan managed to vaccinate much of its population yet? No, unfortunately not. Still, only about 10% of the population has received at least one dose of the Pfizer or Moderna shots. And more than 80% of Japanese believe that the rollout has been moving way too slowly. Nanami, who I mentioned earlier, said those like her in their 20s have no idea when they'll be vaccinated. And she told me that she feels extremely anxious and very uneasy because of this. Another Tokyo local, Mari, said that whenever she reads the news about other countries, especially in terms of the vaccine rollout, it seems like Japan is lagging way behind. She also hasn't been vaccinated yet, and she hasn't been able to see her family who live outside of Tokyo. In other parts of the world, we see vaccine hesitancy as a factor in the slow rollout of vaccines. But that's not the case, it seems, in Japan. No, it's definitely not vaccine hesitancy, I think. According to Shimoda Iso Makoto, who is part of Japan's COVID-19 task force, in general, the Japanese population tend to express a high degree of hesitancy about vaccines But this reluctance doesn't appear to extend to the COVID-19 vaccine. So, for example, bookings at large-scale vaccination centers are getting snatched up very quickly. And so it seems the delays in rollout have been primarily due to logistics and bureaucracy. For example, the approval process for vaccines here is extremely slow, which obviously delayed the vaccination drive. And there were also technical issues with booking So websites used to make reservations for these vaccines, they frequently crashed, and call centers were constantly overwhelmed. And Japan also lacks medical staff to administer the vaccines, in part because the law only allows registered doctors and nurses to give these jabs. The government is planning to allow pharmacists, as well as paramedics and clinical laboratory technicians, to inoculate people. But there are also fears that one mistake by an inexperienced practitioner could fuel vaccine hesitancy in the country. Well, even so, even if that does speed up, it doesn't appear that the vaccination effort in Japan will ease the country's worries about all those people coming from abroad during the Games. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the rollout is accelerating for sure. These large-scale centres in Tokyo and Osaka, which are two major cities in the country, These centers are now offering about 15,000 shots per day, but it'll obviously take a lot longer to vaccinate the entire population. So we don't know how safe the Olympics will be. We're just hoping Japan won't become a mixing vessel for the virus and create an Olympic virus strain. 
Ed, are you surprised that the Japanese government hasn't done more to get as many people vaccinated as possible before the games begin? I mean, only what, around 10% or so of the population has been vaccinated so far, which is super low compared to other rich countries. Yes, I think it's a poor performance. It shows a kind of remarkable lack of urgency, actually. But again and again, we've seen this in the pandemic, haven't we? It's countries that have had low cases and successfully managed to run a, a kind of zero COVID policy have been quite slow on vaccination. It just seems remarkable to me that the Japanese government had a year to think about this and really wanted these games to go on, it seems. Yes, because the idea of these games was as a, a kind of important statement of Japan's role in the world, a more outgoing, assertive, confident Japan. And it's not working out like that, put it that way. So the $64 billion question, are the Olympics going to become some big super spreading event where new variants emerge and do terrible things? Well, I hope not, but I do worry about highly infectious variants spreading more quickly as a result, because you are bringing together 90,000 people from 200 different countries in the same place. And granted, many of them will probably be vaccinated. You will have the testing and, and so on. But with so many people and the pandemic still in full swing in much of the world, it's inevitable that you will have some people who will be infected and you will have an outbreak. Whether those outbreaks will be contained before these people return to their countries and spread these variants further remains to be seen. But just because of the large numbers involved, uh, I, I do worry. I mean, we, we did see that happening with the Australian Open, the tennis tournament, where, you know, they had all these precautions. Uh, they brought about, I think, a thousand players and people supporting them on charter flights, you know, did extensive testing and quarantine. And, and they still had about, I think, 10 people who turned out to be infected on the flights, even though they had tested negative prior to the trip. So I am a bit worried. I'll, I'll just offer an opinion. I mean, I'll just lay out there. I think this is a terrible idea. I just think it's not a good idea. The whole world has been bruised by the whole experience and many places are still suffering quite severely. Vaccine rollout is going well, but you know we've had 2 billion shots in arms and we, there's a, more than 10 billion to go to really vaccinate the rest of the world. We're not even a third of the way there. Putting in essentially a live bit of live ammunition into the pandemic recovery just seems like a really unnecessary risk to take. Ed? This is radio, so you can't see that I'm not a sportsman. But if, you, if it was television, you'd know I was not a sportsman. But um, I do think that there's something to be said for the Olympics. It brings people a lot of pleasure. It brings people together. We've had 18 miserable months of isolation. The world needs things to celebrate. The way to think about this is in terms of cost and benefit. And increasingly, we're going to have to apply standards of cost and benefit to activities. You know, is it worth opening bars? Is it worth allowing people to go to theatres? You know, you're going to have to have a sense of proportionate risk. And I think it's possible to manage this to minimise the risk. So I'm less puritanical than you. I think this should go ahead. I just think it's a particularly unique situation. I mean, I think that the idea of bringing pleasure and, and all of those things, I'm with you with all of those, but many, many people from all over the world are going to go to one place and then all go back to their original places. So if a new variant were to emerge, they'll just seed that to other parts of the world. It might sound unnecessarily pessimistic, but I just, I just feel like after this year, we just don't want the apple cart to sort of be upset. 
But okay, well, thank you both very much. Before we go, are there any stories that jumped out at you this week that you'd like to share with us? Slavea? Well, I've been looking at whether the new names of the variants um, uh, yes, the, the new Greek names. alphabet letter. We haven't mentioned them so alpha, far. Greek, yes, uh, the alpha and the delta and so on, um, whether they'll catch on and, and whether people will still keep calling them the British variant and the Indian variant. What I found interesting about the renaming is it's going to be confusing for a while because people will still call it Alpha, the South African variant, and so on, won't they? Uh, Just explain what you're talking about. And I think that's necessary. And I've seen lots of newspapers and media organisations start referring to them in this way, which is probably good. But uh, my question is, the reason it was changed is to sort of take away the stigma from the place that the variant was discovered, which I think is completely right. But what about the stigma to the Greek alphabet? You know, it's the, <laughs> what if the what if the what if the, the Zeta uh, variant is so bad that you have to retire the word Zeta forever? What what would, yeah, what would mathematicians do? Yeah. Um, Ed, how about you? What, what what have you seen this week? I liked a paper that tried to estimate the weight of virus particles of COVID nineteen oh, wow. around the world. And uh, they reckon, this is a team from mostly from the Weizmann Institute in Israel, and they reckon that supposing each person carries between 1 billion and 100 billion virions at the peak of their infection, then they would have no more than 0.1 milligrams of virus in their bodies. And then they looked at the amount of infection around the world, and they reckon that when they were doing this, I think this paper was submitted a while back, it's just been published, but the global mass of SARS-CoV-2 virus particles was between 100 grams and 10 kilograms. Quite a big range, but, you know, it's, it's something you could put in a suitcase. <laughs> look what it's done. Look what it's done. The other interesting thing is they looked at, at mutation and they reckon that pretty much every day, every possible combination of single point mutations is happening. Wow. So... That's quite an alarming thought. Well, that just adds to my Tokyo Olympics pessimism. (laughs) I'm not quite sure after reading that paper why you disagree with me still. (laughs) Ed, Slavea, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Alok. Thank you. That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designers are Nico Rofast and Carla Patella. The editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radioaleconomist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll be asking why Latin America has been so badly hit by COVID-19. 